As we turn to this passage, you're accustomed to hearing me say that we are going to hear the gospel. We say we retell the gospel every Lord's Day throughout the whole service and every sermon. But maybe you can identify with my failing heart at times, which asks in times like these, is, is the gospel relevant? Given that our earth is infected, our world, our cities are on fire, racial tensions endure, is the gospel relevant today? Well, is hope relevant? Is it relevant today that we need hope? Well, if we need hope, if it's relevant to talk about hope, then it's relevant to talk about the gospel. Because the gospel gives hope this way. It, it is through Jesus Christ alone that we are reconciled with a holy God. And in that reconciliation, we experience the love of God. And how? Because on this Pentecost Sunday, what this what this color represents. Pentecost Sunday is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who comes to pour out the love of God in abundance in our hearts. And with that outpouring of love, the Bible says we have a hope that does not disappoint. So it's this gospel that we look at in this Old Testament passage. Good news, even for a time like this. We find the recollection of the gospel, the, 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 the conveyance of the way the gospel is shared and embraced in the verbs in this passage. I want you to pay attention to the verbs as they come to us in verses 1 through 12, Exodus chapter 18. <clears throat> Jethro, the priest of Midian... Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one son was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other son was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent to Moses, I... Your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. When he sent that word, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of the Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. 
Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray as Pastor Brandon has already prayed that you would come. Lord Jesus, send that comforter you promised. May we know him to be with us palpably, truly, really, even as he fulfills his work of pouring out the love of God in our hearts that we might have hope that never disappoints. Empower us in it to be heralds of that same hope. We pray in the strong name of Jesus and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. The last 20 years or so, there's been a remarkable phenomenon occurring in in Japan. Uh, Bach is the hottest music there is. Johann Sebastian Bach, 17th century composer from, from Germany. And they can't get enough of his music. The Bach boom, they call it. I read uh, recently a quote from a friend of mine who I used to work with in, in St. Louis named Bob Barrett, who is now director of Bach at the Sim at Concordia Seminary, who was uh, a composer, I mean a, a, a director of Bach choirs in Tokyo for a number of years. And he said that uh, in his time of directing Bach choirs and uh, Bach concertos from the organ, It never failed, but that those in his audience would come up to him afterwards and ask him to explain the meaning of the words, meaning, what is this gospel? They didn't know that word, but he he had opportunity to explain the gospel. He, He said it happened no less than 15 times that people came to Christ after one of his concerts. He baptized one of them. People are coming to Christ because of Bach's music. There's a an organist in, in Minnesota, a Japanese organist, who said she came to Christ through box fugues. There is a, another a composer who says he came to Christ because of the golden variations. The man most responsible for introducing Japan, or we might say reintroducing Japan to box music, was is named Masaki Suzuki. The king of the Bach boom, they call him. He leads the Bach Collegium in Tokyo. And he says that, that his experience is the same. He came to Christ through, through Bach, and, and uh, now he has a passion for sharing not just Bach, but Bach's Savior with his people. 
And he's had opportunity to lead others to Christ as well. And he says, it never fails that after a concert in which people have paid as much as $1,000 a seat to hear Johann Sebastian Bach, they'll come to him afterwards. And he puts the translation of the cantata or whatever it is in the, in the, in the, in the bulletin. And it's a, it's a Japanese translation of the German. And they inevitably come and ask him to explain... What is the meaning of this word? The word that's, that, that, that is, is trying to be translated, that they're trying to translate in Japan, is the word that we would know as hope. But in Japanese, Master Suzuki says, there is no adequate translation for the word hope. There's wish or desire. There's another word that means something that is unattainable. But when they look at that word in the context of a Bach concerto or a cantata, in which Bach, everything Bach wrote was initially for the church. Three quarters of what he wrote was for the church. He, he, he wrote from the text. He, he, he wrote the gospel. He wrote about Christ. When they look at that word in the context of what Bach wrote, they said this cannot mean an unattainable desire. It's something stronger than that. And Suzuki, as Bob Barrett, as others, other Christians, are then able to explain the Christian concept of hope. Even the word hope for us sounds like a wish or wishful thinking. It's not the biblical idea, wishful thinking. Hope is certainty that Christ is the King. Hope is certainty that when Christ has reconciled you to the Father, you cannot be lost. Hope is certainty that Christ the King is going to rule and reign until He brings all His enemies, even the present enemies, under His feet. That is the hope we have. And that hope is only gained, is only received, is only lived in by means of the gospel. That we have the privilege of sharing. And this morning, we must embrace as well. I want you to see the patterns of those two things in this passage of sharing the gospel. What are the patterns we find for sharing this gospel of hope? What are the patterns we find if, if you're not a believer in Christ or if you are a believer and you've, you've, you've lost your way, what are the patterns we observe for embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, look with me beginning in verses 2 through 8 and see the pattern for sharing the gospel. Now, you immediately are thinking, I know you must be thinking, is it appropriate to talk about the gospel in an Old Testament text? Isn't that something that, that won't come until later? Isn't that a New Testament word? It is a New Testament word. That is the Greek word from which gospel comes. That's a, that's a Greek word. But the New Testament uses the word gospel to describe what God is doing in salvation in the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Paul says, the gospel was announced ahead of time to Abraham. The gospel. 
The good news that Jesus Christ was going to come through Abraham's line and Christ was going to live and die and be raised again. That's found in the Old Testament. That's the gospel. You say, well, that was only for the Gentiles. He's announcing what was going to be good news for the Gentiles, which you find in the New Testament. Okay, you need, you need a more direct reference, and you can think about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, that Christ, that, that Moses did not consider the riches of Egypt more valuable than the riches of Christ. Moses knew Christ not in all the detail that we know him with the New Testament vision, but Moses knew Christ. The New Testament tells us, Jude verse 5, it was Jesus who led the people out of Egypt. So it was Christ Moses knew who was leading him out. It was Christ who stood on that rock and took the beating from the rod to bring forth water. So if, if, if Moses is sharing the gospel, then we should expect to find patterns for our sharing the gospel. And I said that we'll find it in the verbs. We'll find the pattern for the verbs. Well, the first verb is only implied in verses 1 through 6, and it is lived. The first essential thing in sharing the gospel is to, is to live the gospel. I don't know about you, but when a, when a preacher tells me that we have to pay attention to our lives, we have to live the gospel, I immediately think of all the ways I'm failing in that. And so I think I've got to be nicer. You know, I've got to smile more in public. I've got to, uh, I've got to make sure the neighbors don't hear me yelling at my kids or see me kicking my dog. I've got to smile when I talk to the person in the, in the, in, in the store. I've got to be more careful the way I drive. All those things are important. They are important. We... They are behaviors that should come out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's not, that's not what happened here. This is Moses' father-in-law, for instance. This is Moses' father-in-law who is coming to ask Moses, what in the world is God doing through you? I've got to know. And this father-in-law is surely not impressed with his son-in-law. He knows him. He knows Moses. He, he knows that when Moses came to him as a sheep herder, he was a, he was a fugitive. He may have had fancy clothes at the time, but, he, but they were getting soiled and tattered because he had run away from Egypt. And he had run away from Egypt because he had murdered someone. And, and he was a sheep herder. And uh, Moses, to be father-in-law, gave him a job. Moses, to be father-in-law, Jethro was a, was a preacher himself. He was a priest at Midian, a pagan priest. And, and so he, he took Moses under his care, and he gave him a job. He eventually entrusted his daughter Zipporah to him. And you can imagine the way, the, the way Jethro would have responded when Moses came in one day and said, I have a job. I have a new job. I'm going to be a preacher. Oh, that's wonderful. I've been called. I've been called to be a preacher. Well, great. What God are you serving? Well, his name is I am. Wonderful. I am what? Well, it's, it's, that's all I know. It's, uh, it's I am. I am what? I am that I am. A lot of gods out there. 
Jethro must have thought, what's, what's he calling you to do? What are you supposed to do? I'm supposed to go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Jethro surely wouldn't have been impressed with his son-in-law. But then Moses went, and that happened. The people were released. Now, Jethro, for whatever reason, is babysitting Moses' children. There's no evidence that Moses divorced his wife. Some, some scholars say that. There's no evidence of that. It's probably that Moses, maybe for lack of faith, said, I'm not sure I can trust God with my family. So he sent his family, his wife and his children, back to stay with his father-in-law. And, and every day his father-in-law would have remind, been reminded there's nothing in Moses to be impressed with. His first son means I'm a sojourner. I'm a fugitive. His second son, Eliezer, means God is my strength. God is my father. God is the one who has delivered me. He surely would have heard from his daughter-in-law, Zipporah, Daddy, you'll never, you, you'll never guess what happened. An angel of the Lord nearly killed us because Moses, for whatever reason, didn't circumcise our first son like he told us. He's not, there's nothing in Moses' life with which to be impressed. There's no reason, no compelling reason in Moses that would draw Jethro to ask about his great God. You've heard me say before, that our calling as evangelists, as ambassadors of the gospel, as heralds of the king, is not to impress people with how, gr- much, how great we are or how much we have it together, but instead to convince them that if Christ can save me, Christ can save you. Which means like Moses, telling people the dirt in our lives and saying, and Jesus saved and keep saving me anyway. He lived. He lived. Second verb is went, verse 7. Moses went. That's significant. Jethro comes to visit effectively a head of state, the head of state. Moses is a head of a, of, of a power, a power that is a, a national power that is now defeated the tyrants of the desert, the Amalekites, and, and has successfully left Egypt and, and left destruction in their wake by means of the Red Sea closing in on their pursuers. But, and, and so the, the tradition for visiting a head of state was that the, the visitor would seek out the head of state, find him in his tent or on his throne, and bow before him and ask for favor. But Moses, when he heard that his father-in-law was coming to visit him, Moses went to him. And Moses bowed to him and showed him respect. To be a herald of the gospel, to be an ambassador of the gospel is to be a servant. It is to go to those who don't know Christ, to those who are running away from Christ. 
It's to go to them and to explore and ask, what are your practical needs that I might serve them? It's to ask, what are your questions? It's to welcome their questions. Every question is important. It's not to mock their questions. But when they ask, how could a good God allow a pandemic to afflict this, afflict this world? It's to take that question seriously. How could a good God, a loving God, tell us to submit to authorities when authorities abuse their power? How can we say that God is sovereign? That how can we talk about Jesus riding on when we're fighting the same battles over and over again? We take those questions seriously and we say, those are good questions. And I confess, I ask myself, and even if you don't have the answers immediately, you can say, could we study the Bible together? I think that's where God reveals his mind. Let's look at the scriptures together, see if he has an answer for it. Or let's go meet with somebody who knows the Bible well, see if there are, are answers. Moses went. We have to live. We have to go. And then we have to tell the story. We have to, we have to explain it in verse 8. The text says, Moses told his father-in-law about how great he was? Absolutely not. Moses has already told us all the dirt on himself. We wouldn't know all this, ne these negative traits of Moses if Moses had not written them down. So Moses told his father-in-law, verse 8, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that they had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. He told them the whole story. This is what God had to do with me. This is the, these are the doubts he had to conquer in me. These are, the, these are the complaints he had to hear from me. Here's the anger he has endured from me. Here's the rebellion that God has, has mercifully endured and atoned for in the people of Israel. And, and regardless of our rebellion, regardless of our stiff necks, God rained down quail for us, and he gave us water from the rock, and he gave us dry ground, and he gave us defeat against our enemies, victory over our enemies. He, he, he told him, he, he told him the whole story in a compelling way. We have to compel people. Jesus said, compel them to come. Beg them to come. Beg them. There's a quote I think about every week when I'm preaching, when I'm preparing to preach to you. It was given to me many years ago by a friend. It's a quote from Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who was preaching to some 10,000 people in, in the Surrey Gardens, and he, he, in, at one point in passion, he said, I cannot bear that I think that I'm standing by your coffin now and looking into your clay-cold face and saying, this man despised Christ and neglected the great salvation. I think what bitter tears I shall weep then if I think that I have been unfaithful to you and how those eyes fast closed in death shall seem to chide me and say, minister, I attended the music hall, but you were not in earnest with me. You amused me. You preached to me, but you did not plead with me. I plead with you as I plead with my own heart. 
Believe the great things the Lord has done in the past that are recorded for us in worse times than these. And I plead with you to believe the great things that He is doing now that we may not see and the great things that He will continue to do until He puts all enemies under His feet. And so I plead with you to embrace it. To embrace it. That's the, that's the next major point in the divide of the passage in verses 1 and 9 through 12. That's exactly what Jethro did. Jethro, Jethro embraced the gospel. This pagan Midianite priest embraced the gospel. How so? First of all, by hearing it. Verse 1. Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. Jethro didn't hear just, just whatever physical phenomenon occurs where sounds enter your ear and they register with your brain. That's, he heard. He heard like Rahab said, would say later in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, Rahab the harlot. You remember Rahab the prostitute is the one who, who provided safe passage for the, the two spies who came into the land. And they, 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 they must not have known it was a prostitute's house. They went in there for the boarding for, for a, a room that night. And then the king came looking for them. And, uh, and, she, and she lied and protected them. And then when they asked her later, why did you do that for us? She said, because we've heard about you. Oh, we've heard about you. We've heard what your God has done for you. We've heard that your God delivered you from Egypt. And when we heard it, our hearts melted. You must hear it. You must hear it. And allow your heart to be melted. That there is a great God, the only true God. The one who is king over heaven and earth and given his son, his only son, to die in the place of sinners. To take all of the sin, including that which we are experiencing now. To take it all on himself and take the wrath of God due to it, due for it. On himself that he might substitute righteousness for anyone who should take it for himself. You've got to hear that. That's news for you. And when you hear it and embrace it, not only as a solution for your own sin, but a solution for the sin of the world, the sin that's oppressing you from without as much as it's oppressing you from within, then you will, as Jethro did, rejoice. Look at verse 9. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now, you know, sometimes Presbyterians are caricatured as the frozen chosen, and so when we think about rejoicing, we think that our, it's just our palms might get sweaty. We might turn a pinky up. That's not this kind of rejoicing. When it says that Jethro rejoiced, he was physically affected. Literally, his skin tingled. He was shaken by it. 
The joy shook him. You know, one of the blessings of the pandemic is that, and I hear, I see these people writing about this in various places, that there's this reconnection occurring with old friends and, and, and family. I've, I've gotten letters from, from, from people I knew only as children 20, 30 years ago, and now they've become grown-ups, and they're reaching out to me. I asked my family at some point, am I dying of cancer? And nobody's told me about it. Why am I getting all these, these letters, people asking how I'm doing, trying to reconnect with me? And, but one of the blessings that I've experienced is reconnection with extended family, some family I didn't even know I had. And one of the things we've started doing, we'll do it this afternoon, is to connect by Zoom. We have a, a Zoom conference call with Robertsons. And, uh, and it's, it's shocking to me how many of us are Christians. When I became a Christian, nobody in my family that I knew of was a Christian. And now how many have become Christian? I've started interviewing them. I interviewed some cousins uh, just this past week, and I asked them, can you tell me how you came to Christ? And the, t- the testimony was basically this. I saw it in the lives of these people. I even saw it in your life, the way the Lord transformed you as a little boy out of your, and, and how he's rescued you out of your depression and anxiety. And all of those things, those things converged at some point. And my cousin said, we heard somebody present the gospel in a Bible study and our skin tingled. That's what they said. We were shaken. My one cousin said, my heart burned within me. Oh, may that be the case for you today. That you will rejoice and rejoice. You notice what what, what Jethro did. Jethro, verse 9, rejoice for all the good that the Lord had done. You know, some people say, I'm too happy to be a Christian. Some people say, my life's going so well. Why do I need Christ? Christ is only for people who are in trouble. And we tend to think that too in our evangelism. Boy, I can't share the gospel with that person. They're not miserable enough. Oh, but, you, but, but the Bible says it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. Have you experienced kindness in this pandemic? If you're listening to me, you're at least living today. God's giving you that breath. Do you have a job? Or has God provided a meal for you? Is there... Some person who has reached out to you in life, if you look around, even as bleak as your circumstances might be, you will find that there is some, there's at least a sliver of light of God's goodness breaking into your world. And you must understand the reason it is, is because God wants you. God wants you to be his child. He wants you in his family and he wants you to live with him forever that should produce rejoicing and so Jethro goes on when he when he hears all that the Lord has done when he says if that God can save my son-in-law he can surely save me if that God can save those hard-headed Israelites he can surely save me if that God can deliver them just by prayer if he can bring water out of a rock if he can cause them to still believe in him though times are hard then that's 
the God I need. And he makes a step that surely costs him everything. He was a priest in Midian, which meant he worshipped pagan gods. And here he says in verse 9 that those pagan gods have all been defeated. There's only one God in heaven and earth. And so he rises in verse 10 and blesses the Lord. He publicly proclaims that he believes And then he offers a sacrifice to the one true God that surely would have gotten him fired from his pulpit back in Midian. It surely would have lost him family and friends. But he committed his life. Notice what he gets in response in verse 12. He gets God sitting down with him for a meal. Yes, Aaron, Moses served it, but... That's the image in the sacrifice of the Old Testament. When you sit down, you sit down with, you, you, you only sit down and eat with a friend. And when you sit down and eat with God, you eat with a friend. He's prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Tonight, this table behind me will be set with the elements of communion that we ask you to serve yourselves at home. And, and you must understand that when you, when you take those Elements of communion, that's God saying to you, you're my friend now. That's what the gospel offers. If the gospel can bring reconciliation between sinners and a a holy God, then it can surely bring reconciliation among us. Among us in this country, among us in this church, among us in this city. I shared a couple of years ago the story of James Emery Bond. James Emery Bond was born in 1889 in Baltimore County in a log cabin. His grandfather was a slave. He grew up at the knees of his grandfather's great aunts and great uncles hearing the atrocities of slavery. And by his own testimony, he said he grew up understandably hating white people. He got a job as a truck driver, and he and Isabella, his bride, raised ten children. Retired in the 1970s, but before he retired, he... he, um, he, he, he saw a phenomenon occurring in his neighborhood that, 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 that there was a truck that would go through the neighborhood and, and, and deliver milk right to your door. He thought, that'd be, that'd be really nice to have a glass of milk before I went to work. And so he called up the company and asked for it to be delivered. Didn't come. Went to the went to the truck driver, the, the driver, the delivery man one day and said, well, I, I signed up for a milk service. Why hasn't it come? And the white man in the truck said, because I don't deliver milk to your kind. He called the company. The company said, that's a lie. They made the man start delivering the milk. And then he noticed after a time he didn't get a bill. So he, he called the company again. Well, they said, well, the bill's been going out. So he stopped the the truck driver, the, the, the delivery man again, and he said, where's my bill? He said, I don't take money from your kind. Mr. Bond said, I always pay my bills, so I'm going to put the money on the top of the fence post here, and you can come by and pick it up. 
He stood there and waited for the man one day to come pick it up, and he, he reached out his hand. The delivery man reached out his hand for the money, and then Mr. Bond put his hand over his, and he jerked back and screeched. Like he'd been touched with a hot cauldron. He, Mr. Bond said, I did that just out of meanness. 1964, one evening, James Emery Bond was watching television. He was watching WBAL-TV, and, and the host uh, of the show was Sidney King, and the producer and manager, Brent Guntz, was there too. And they were, they were, they were asking, what, what can we do about the race riots? What can we do about the racial tensions in our city and elsewhere? What can we do about this... this this, this troubled nation we have, and they didn't have any answers. And so they turned to the audience and they said, if any of you has any answers, please feel free to, to write in, call in, share them with us. All night, James Emery Bond was, was, was troubled. He couldn't sleep because they didn't get to the answer. He knew what the answer was. So he, the next morning, as soon as he could get up, he put his boots on, his work boots, and he, he walked three miles up TV Hill, went right past the reception, receptionist and went right into the office of Brent Guntz, and he said, I have the answer. You, you, you're asking last night what the answer is. I have the answer. And Mr. Guntz had the, had the wisdom to start rolling the camera. This interview, by the way, earned an Emmy soon after it was broadcast. And the gray-haired James Emery Bond said, I have the answer. He told that story about the milkman. He told the story about how much he hated white people and, and how those, the kids, when he was growing up with those white kids, would throw rocks at him, and, and he hated them. He said, one day, Billy Sunday came to our town. And that preacher, Billy Sunday, he said, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and he died to make you a lover of other people, to replace your hate with love. I walked the sawdust trail and Jesus took all that hate out of my heart. I quit hating the white man. I started loving the white man. And three days later he said, the milkman came to my door and with tears running down his face, he said, I beg your forgiveness. I went to hear that preacher Billy Sunday and he said, Jesus died to save me from my sins and to take hate out of my heart and to make me a lover of people, not a hater of people. I've been hating you. I ask your forgiveness. And we embraced each other. We loved each other. And we've loved each other ever since. I'm here to tell you that the answer to Baltimore's problems is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that replaces hate with love. He went on to say, as long as you're a hater, you're in the control of the devil. As long as I was a hater, I was in control of the devil. As long as that milkman was in the, it was a hater. He was in control of the devil. And the Lord Jesus set us two rascals free from our sin and free from our hate. The gospel is the answer. It is relevant. There is no amount of tear gas and political reform there's no amount of legislation or political action that can solve this problem of hate. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ 
the love of God poured out and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we have it. And we must not only share it, but we must embrace it and embrace it by embracing one another. In true friendship, black and white, Hispanic and Asian. We must not regather as churches the same way we were. We must lead the way in this city by demonstrating in objective fashion the reconciling power of the gospel by black and white, Asian and Hispanic, worshiping together in the same place, calling each other brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, recreating together, vacationing together, going out to eat together, being in one another's homes, living as real family. May the day come. May the day come when somebody drives into the city of Memphis and says, can you give me directions to the white church? And somebody says, there are no white churches here. Well, then can you give me the directions to a black church? There are no black churches here. Hispanic church? Asian church? A stoic church? An enlivened church? A church that raises hands? A church that kneels? Nope. We just have churches. Churches of the Lord Jesus Christ who knelt before the Father right before he died and said, I pray that they might be one. Let's retell that gospel and retell it Until the church is what God imagines it to be. Let's not quit reimagining the city until it is what it is supposed to be. And with hope, let's set about repairing it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before this overwhelming need our world has. It's always had this need. It's just sometimes we are more numb to it than others. But you're waking us up. We pray that we would not become numb again. We pray we would not go to sleep again. You're waking us up, and please don't quit until you have awakened and revived us. Heal our church. Heal us individually. Heal the mental illness of racism, the mental illness of violence. Heal the illness of riots and hatred. Heal it with the gospel of Jesus Christ.
in whose name we pray and God's people said,